1: all lowercase. That's Shopify.com slash tech
2: podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that as a man. I I don't get it.
0: Welcome to to
2: smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Hope you're doing well. This week on the show, we're diving into a subject we've never covered before, one that, frankly, intimidates me a little bit and is slightly outside the bounds of what we typically cover on the show. We are talking about racism. We're talking about reparations. We're talking about empathy and understanding and so much more. This week on the show, we have Coleman Hughes and Coleman is an incredible guy. He is a writer, a podcaster, a columnist, a philosopher. He's been featured in New York times, wall street journal. He's appeared on some incredible shows and podcasts such as Bill Maher, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson show. He testified before us Congress. And, oh, he's also got his undergrad degree from Columbia. He went to Juilliard, and he was Forbes 30 Under 30. I mean, especially for a young guy, just incredibly sharp, articulate, and talented, by the way. Coleman also has a new record out called Amor Fati, and he hosts the very popular podcast Conversations with Coleman. I wanted to have Coleman on because... I wanted to have a nuanced and well-rounded discussion on the topic and perhaps see it from a slightly different angle than we've been bombarded with on the news for the past few years. And I think we accomplished that. As I say in the show, if we're all here to gather good information and make life choices based off that, this clearly is a discussion that we need to have on the show. love to hear your feedback. Shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. And let's get into it. Here's our discussion with Coleman Hughes about racism, reparations, and more. Enjoy. Well, listen, here's why I wanted to have you on. And admittedly, this is probably the hardest podcast I've had to prepare for or do in 10, 12 years. And the reason is because one of the main conversations I want to have is around something that I don't fully understand, uh, but I want to. And I thought it would only be fair like if this whole podcast is designed to get better information, to make better decisions, then we should cover it. And it's the general overarching theme of racism, which I know is something you have talked about for a long time. And I want to start with this. I mentioned to you you know, hey, we haven't really covered this topic in 12 years. And your face, you were like, really? When I said that, I'm curious, what went through your mind?
1: No, it's just, it's interesting because it's been in the conversation for a long time. And certainly during 2020 and 2021, it seemed like all anyone was talking about was was race. There was an explosion of interest in the media. And you can actually see this in graphs right certain people have looked at how many times the new york times mentioned the term racism per week right and it goes it's like a flat line until like 2010 and then starts to tick up and then in 2020 it just skyrockets right you said you had done 400 podcasts which was really impressive to me and and um, rare so i just figured one of them you must have touched on it but not necessarily
2: yeah and it's a miss on our part right i mean it just is and so I was excited to talk to you about it. You mentioned that growth in racism, whether it be in the media or just in general discussion. What drove that increase?
1: So it's a complicated story. Some would say that what drove the increase in coverage about racism was an increase in racism, right? That would be a very uh, a simple theory. I, I don't think that's right. I think if you look at any indicator of real racism such as how many black people unarmed get killed by the cops every year, or what people say in poll data about whether they would how they'd react if someone of a different race moved in, the, in next door, any indicator you want to use, racism has been going down pretty much steadily since 1965, right? 1965, around that time. Something like half or more of the country would have said, I don't want my son daughter marrying someone of a different race. It was an overwhelming majority opinion. Now that's single digits. Um, so any indicator of racism you want to find has generally been going down over the past several decades, while over the past decade, the coverage of racism, uh, the concern about racism has been going up. Now, why does, why does that happen? My theory is that it has a lot to do with social media and the ubiquity of smartphones, the, the one-two punch of Facebook, Twitter, and, and other social media um, apps and everyone having a smartphone in their pocket. Now, what that does is it makes information spread exponentially faster. So if it's, if the year is like 2005 and I'm on a street corner in New York, and let's say some white guy yells the N-word at some um, some person, right? Like one of these just crazy racist freak events that happen from time to time. What happens there? Basically, you know, I tell my friends about it. I get on a landline and like, I'm like, this crazy thing happened today. And I go on with my life. In 2018, say, or 20. Starting around 2012, what happens is I'm filming it with my smartphone and I'm posting it on Facebook where it can be seen by millions of people in hours, right? That fundamentally changes the way that information travels. And when you change the way information travels, certain kinds of information benefit from that change more than others. So information that is divisive, that taps into our tribal impulses, that really goes right to your limbic system and makes you angry that stuff benefits from the information superhighway from smartphones and social media way more than information such as like a fact check right fact checks don't spread that quickly so the the combination of all that means that people cover uh the media ends up covering race racist incidents or allegedly racist incidents far more And people get the impression that racism is on the rise and everywhere, even though in actual fact it's been going down.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of I heard somebody equate the craziness of social media to the crazy neighbor that we all had growing up. So they gave this story, they said, You know, we all knew that person in the neighborhood, but you just don't go knock on their door, you don't go into their yard, like they're gonna yell at you. Yeah, now that person reaches a million people instead of the four mm-hmm. in your neighborhood. And so mm-hmm. if everybody had that crazy neighbor, now imagine a you know a social media platform full of those crazy neighbors. And it was the best way I could think about it. Because mm-hmm. as you were highlighting, and, and there's a book um, that I've referenced a few times on the show, it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature. Most of the things we deal with in civilization today are better off than they were historically, if you look back at any time frame. But it doesn't feel that way. From your perspective, given the amount of discussions you have with thought leaders on your podcast, the amount of uh, reading and research and writing you've done, um, in general, do you think it's a better place to be today than in the past?
1: So I would say in in most ways, the, the, pre- the present is better than the past in terms of Uh, Well, some people say wages have been stagnant for decades and that that is true among some populations. But the price of goods and services has been coming down. So what you can get for $10 versus what you could get for inflation adjusted $10 in 1950, you can get way more today. Right. So in that sense, even today's poor are wealthier than yesterday's poor Today's middle class is wealthier than yesterday's middle class in terms of the actual purchasing power of your money. So that that counts for something. People live longer than they lived 50 years ago. On the other hand, life expectancy seems to have been declining in America for a couple years now, largely thanks to the opioid epidemic. So innovation has led to lots of general uh, benefits, right? Like lots of diseases that you could have died from in 1950, you don't die from today. That's a very real benefit of modernity. Technology, a lot of technology is a, is a great benefit. And, and so uh, transportation, the ability to hop on a plane for $200 and go to a completely different part of the country is something that was not available to people in the past. So in all these different ways, we have more opportunities. On the other hand, innovation is not always good because Uh, We've also innovated to make, you know, foods more addictive, but not necessarily as healthy. And we're far more, far more obese than we were, say, 50 years ago. That's innovation, too. Um, We've innovated uh, content creation and made it so addictive that it's people are spending a lot of, including me, low quality time just like consuming (laughs) snippets of videos, which may be really funny and good, but... But how much of your life do you want to spend in like a TikTok sinkhole? So we've innovated content to be addictive and um, with without actually providing necessarily much soul nourishment, let's say. And, and now everyone has ADHD and everyone has adult ADHD, allegedly. Um, and, and so that's a consequence of innovation too. And... So there are downsides to modernity. I think there are certain ways in which the past is better. Overall, I think I would not trade my life for, say, my grandfather's life. And I think that's true of almost, almost anyone you could ask in, in America and in most modernized countries. If, if you're being honest and you talk to your grandfather or grandmother about what their life was, mostly you wouldn't trade it.
0: This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances at the end of a busy week. The last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions. I no longer use, but now I use rocket money and it does all of that for me. Rocket money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest they'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com.
1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
2: That's a really good way to look at it. On that note, the thing that hooked me into saying, man, I got to talk to Coleman, is this thing you wrote, and it said, most people who grow up at least in diverse settings where they encounter people of other races end up having the deepest possible human relationships with people of different races. What that proves is that there is no amount of intimacy between people or closeness that a racial difference can stop. That seems to be true. But again, the narrative that I think we start to believe in and myself as a white male really start to almost feel guilt for is that if I believe that to be true, then there is an aspect of racism I'm missing because I never lived it.
1: That's an interesting premise, though, because so if you accept the premise that if I haven't experienced X, I cannot possibly understand or have critical thoughts about X. That to me is not an obvious premise. If that's true, then it would be very difficult for you to resonate, frankly, with most movies, most books, most stories that are not narrowly about, for instance, white guys who came from where you came from, right? My guess is that you actually have very little trouble resonating with great movies and great stories and great books where the protagonist is, say, a black guy or, say, a woman or, say, someone from uh, not even from America. Right. I find I don't have any trouble resonating with a good story where the protagonist is a female underdog, for for example, even though I'm I'm a man. Does that mean I know what it's like to be a woman? No. But. It does mean that uh, most human experiences actually can be communicated across identity differences or else stories. You could not resonate with stories that were not about your identity. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. So if I tell you a story about a time when I had a racist incident and I can if you want, I actually if you're paying attention, I don't think you will have trouble imagining yourself into that situation. And if you do that open-mindedly, I think that that empathy actually does. And by the way, that goes both ways, right? So I'm not white. I've never been in a situation where, you, you know, you've expressed in this conversation, you feel weird or maybe even guilty as a white guy thinking a thought that you think might be right, but maybe it's not your place to say, right? I've never been in that situation but i can actually by analogy and by similar other experiences imagine what it would be like to be in that circumstance and this is the basis of human bonds is you tell me your your story i tell you mine and and to say that something about race prevents that basic human you know moment from happening is very wrong to me.
2: yeah yeah and you used a word there that I want to highlight, which is, you know, you can resonate with. And I think what I was trying to say is I resonate with it, but I don't feel like I'm allowed to say it. And and, you know what I mean? And, and I'm not even saying that's a good thing. It's just something I realized in looking at a lot of the things you have said. That's why it's kind of a meta conversation, recognizing like, why have I felt that way? So one Mm -hmm. was I watched your testimony on reparations and I said, Man, everything he said makes all the sense in the world. But can I say that?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I hear that. And I would, I mean, my philosophy, and this is not shared by everyone, of course, is that good arguments and true arguments and wise arguments, arguments that would lead to a better world if they were adopted, that you can make those arguments regardless of who you happen to be. Uh, whether you are white or black man or woman etc and that you should not judge people based on their their skin color or or their gender but whether what they're saying seems right to you and if it seems wrong to you you should spell out why it seems wrong to you without saying oh well you're a white guy oh well you're a blah 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 whatever it is to, that that that's an ad hominem to me and you know i think like a philosopher i was a philosophy undergrad your i don't think your the truth or or what is true or what is good depends on the identity of the speaker and i i i hope to inspire more and more people to live that way
2: yeah i want to dig back into the quote that i just mentioned there's no amount of intimacy between people or closeness that a, that a racial difference can stop it reminds me of the statement i don't see race and even that statement, I feel like with good intent coming out of somebody's mouth can be taken a number of ways. What do you think about that? If I were to say, I don't see race, or if I were to bring up my little boys who who they really didn't even recognize it until a certain age?
1: Yeah, so I don't see race. That's a phrase that has been uh, repeated a lot. And I, I think, as you know, in a well-intentioned way, but the problem is that for adults, it's not true certainly for american adults and I, I would argue probably most adults around the world the unfortunate fact is we do see race right like everyone watching your video is going to notice that i'm not white and that you, that you are right and we are conditioned to think of people as falling into racial categories now that's a whole nother conversation whether we should even be thinking of people as in racial categories because i think race race is more of a social construct than a reality but the point is the fact is that most of us do so to say i don't see race it's not true and it's frustrating to people because they feel gaslit essentially right as if you're saying oh i'm so special i don't see race i i couldn't what you're saying is i couldn't possibly be racist right how could i be racist if i don't even right so the problem the problem with that is that it's not literally true But I think what a lot of people mean by it, uh, the subtext is true, which is that what they mean is I really try my best to treat people without regard to race. And that's much more wordy, but it's more accurate. And I think if you're tempted to say, I don't see race, you should pause and think about what, what is it that you mean to say or really want to say. And nine times out of 10, what you mean to say is, I search myself and I honestly try my best to treat people in my life regardless of their race. And that is very defensible. That is the way that we should all strive to be. And children are a bit of a different story because I think actually children sometimes don't notice race. So, for example, there's there's a story. I forget if it was written about or if there was a video of it. Uh, It was a black kid and a white kid that we're having some conversation and I think the white kid like tells his mom, Oh, Brandon, Brandon looks just like me. Right. And the reveal is you're waiting to see who Brandon is and Brandon is this black kid. Right. And often kids, because they are not yet conditioned into our culture fully their defaults, they notice color, obviously. Right. They notice color, but they don't necessarily notice race, which is a concept separate from color. They notice that like, oh, mommy, that man has chocolate skin or like these little innocent observations, but they don't categorize like, oh, that makes him a this, or that makes her a that they, they don't necessarily do that. So to say children don't see race is actually sometimes close to the truth. But it's not true of adults. So we should, I think, be more precise.
2: No, that's a that's a really good call out. You know, the difference in the color, obvious notice, but then putting it into a category. And when that shifts, you were mentioning you think it's a societal construct. And I kind of got a sense that you're like, that is a long conversation, man. I don't know if we can go down that. But I'm curious if this plays a role in it, that being a social construct of color versus race.
1: Yeah, well, look, this is basically how I view it the best science right now population geneticists and people who study this kind of thing say that fifty thousand years ago everyone lived in africa and then groups of people started migrating away uh some went to europe some went to asia some eventually made it to what we think of now as north america and they were separated geographically long enough to evolve different features right skin lightened as people went Uh, to colder climates, and all of these, all of the physical markers that we now know as race evolved, right? So that's a real scientific phenomenon, right? That's a real scientific phenomenon. That's not a social construct. What is a social construct is the totally arbitrary rules and lines that we draw between races based on public policy. Are based on societal norms. So, for example, in the old uh, in the old South, they would say anyone who had one drop of black blood was considered black. Why that rule? Who knows? It's it's completely arbitrary. It's got nothing to do with science. Um, if if one of your sixteen great grandparents was black, then you're legally categorized as black. In a, in apartheid South Africa. They would run a pencil through your hair. And if the pencil went all the way through, you were considered white. If the pencil got jammed up on on a kink or on some curly hair, you were considered color. It's like, is that a scientific test? No, that's absolutely a farce. Okay, but what are our tests today? Like, our rules today are no more, no less arbitrary than the rules in apartheid South Africa and and, and, and the Old South. It's like, today you are... Well, if you're from Afghanistan, you're white. But if you're one mile on the other side from Pakistan, you're South Asian. It's like, okay, I'm not sure that makes sense. And we still sort of have the one drop rule. So we think of Barack Obama as the first black president, even though his mother was completely white. Well, why? Well, that's just pretty much the way we do things. And so all of those elements are socially constructed and they change over time. So that's what I mean when I say our, like the box you check on the census, that's not a scientific category, that's a social construct.
2: Right. And you mentioned something there with Barack Obama that reminded me of when I was saying the spike in mentions of racism and media coverage of racism around, you know, 2015, 2020. You know, my first thought goes to Trump. From your perspective, how big of an impact do you believe that the president, the president's skin color, the president's beliefs or policies have on the country and our general views of racism and what's going on and how we treat each other?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my belief is that people place too much blame on the president for everything. So when the economy is doing well, the president always takes credit. Usually it's not really his fall. And this is, you know, Trump did this for four years. He presided over a great economy and he said, it's all me. Usually the the economy is incredibly complicated and not simply determined by one man. Right. If like, if that were the case, then the president would always just wave the magic wand and make the economy better. Right. Um, Also, I think the culture is the same way. People like to blame, Republicans like to blame Obama for playing identity politics when he said, Um, my son would have looked like Trayvon Democrats love to blame Trump for all, all of the, you know, the far right lunacy and white supremacy, um, and, and racism. And I think the truth is we are, both sides have a tendency to blame the president of the other side for everything. When in reality, the culture is its own thing. Our culture is evolving and we are all playing a tiny part in it, um, and it's evolving in particular directions that may be good or bad but look when the president comes out of office you never see these problems evaporate right so you know biden is in, in office now and there are still there's still a lunatic far right fringe of white supremacists doing their thing do they feel less empowered maybe have i noticed a day to day difference in in how people act no i don't think so i don't really think that Adults necessarily take their cues from the president about how to behave in their day to day life. And there's actually an interesting graph from Gallup. And basically, for the past 25 years, Gallup has asked Americans, do you think race relations are good, somewhat good, or bad, right? And they've asked Black Americans this and White Americans this for the past 20, 25 years. And basically, what you see is 70% of white people and 60% of black people say race relations are good starting in 2000. And that number pretty much just stays flat until around 2012. And it just basically nosedives from 2012 to, to the present on among both black and white Americans. So for the majority, yeah, I guess I would say the majority of my lifetime, most people... Of all races thought race relations were good. And then around 2012, something starts to change. Of course, Obama was elected in, 2020, uh, in 2008, so I don't think you can blame it on him. Trump was elected halfway through this trend. I don't think you can blame it on him either. I think the truth is, um, you know, social media and smartphones came along. And the whole explanation I gave earlier about how that leads to more divisive information hitting our. Eyeballs um at you know ten times the rate or more than it used to, I think that's really the explanation um and not any particular president,
2: given the amount of time focus brain power, you dedicate to the topic of racism, inequality, a lot of the things and and obviously that's not all you cover. How frustrated are you on a day to day basis like <laughs> To use this as an example, when I listen to your testimony on reparations, this is going to sound so myopic, but I don't know how people can't agree with your sentiment. It made so much sense to me. There's a statement I wrote down. You said, I'm not saying that acknowledging history doesn't matter. It does. I'm saying there's a difference between acknowledging history and allowing history to distract us from the problems we face today. Who the hell is going to say that statement doesn't make sense? I don't get it. I get frustrated. And I just, this is like a sliver of my life. How, how do you, or, or do are you just out there walking around pissed off all the
1: time? <laughs> <laughs> well, the truth is I stay off Twitter. I, yeah. I try to stay off Twitter if I feel myself getting too frustrated. I was definitely frustrated by the reception of my reparations testimony because it was the most negative reception I've ever gotten to anything that I've really done, but Again, a lot of that is a lot of that is social media based. If you rethink your relationship to social media, you can cut out a lot of the noise. On the other hand, some of it is just like my real life. It's like I've had acquaintances that are mad at me because of my opinion and are like, dude, what the fuck? You're stopping an idiot. Um, stop being an Uncle Tom, whatever it is. At at a certain point, it becomes like verbal abuse that you would have to manage like any other bullying scenario. But if it's just genuine disagreement, then it doesn't really bother me. So I'm not to answer your question. uh, I'm not frustrated. I'm a pretty, pretty even keel, like happy person uh, for the most part. I I do get frustrated when people attribute things to me that I don't believe Mm
2: -hmm. and have never
1: said. Yep. Um, but, but in general, no, I'm, you know, things are good. On, okay. On I was wondering, basis. cause I mean, yeah.
2: I, I wanted to talk about reparations because to me, it was a great microcosm of a lot of the complexity. First, for those that haven't seen your testimony and we'll link to it, could you give us a synopsis of your beliefs around that?
1: There are two separate ideas I want to distinguish. One is reparations for slavery, which... Ended in 1865, and another is reparations for segregation, redlining, and Jim Crow, which didn't end until, let's say, roughly 1965. Although you could sort of quibble about that date. Um, my opposition is reparations to slavery. I don't I don't know of any example in American history, certainly, of people getting rep- reparations for a crime that is over 150 years old. Uh, and there are reasons for that. It's very difficult to do. Uh, the people you are holding responsible and the victims are all long dead. And there's a whole pseudo-scientific industry around sort of estimating where you would be if, you're, if, you're, if your ancestors had not been slaves. And the truth is nobody knows. There's like a butterfly effect of history. Of you, we can't actually say with any precision what your life would have been if your great, 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 great grandfather had had a different life, right? This is not science, that's not public policy, that's magical thinking, that's the stuff of Hollywood movies and time travel and sci-fi. Reparations should have been paid to slaves and there were proposals to pay reparations to slaves after slavery was ended in 1865. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Uh, And doing it today, that doesn't imply that doing it today to the descendants of slaves is a good idea. The successful examples of reparations are when reparations are paid to people who themselves were a victim of the crime, right? So if you're talking about Japanese Americans during, uh, after, after the internment during World War II, they were paid reparations and, and they were paid reparations really to the specific people in question or at most their children. If you're talking about the victims of the Tuskegee experiment uh, in, in the 70s, I believe, those families directly were paid reparations by the government. They were paid damages, essentially. Reparations is is damages and damages are not paid to the fifth grade grandchild of a person that was harmed, they were paid to the person themselves. So I'm for reparations paid directly to victims. And there, there are, there are, there's at least one example I know of where they have done that the city, I believe it's a city of Evanston, a suburb of Chicago, identified specific black residents of, of Evanston who were shut out of the housing market because of redlining. Um, in the probably in the 60s. And those people are still alive and they were compensated directly for an estimate of the damages that they incurred. That kind of reparations I'm for. The kind of reparations I'm against is saying we're going to give every black person or every black descendant of slaves uh, in America a check for slavery, which um, was ended over 150 years ago.
2: What's your main reasoning behind why you disagree with that?
1: Well, so to begin, it doesn't solve, if you're talking about a check with slavery in the memo line, it doesn't solve any of the problems that any of the structural problems we think of when we think of racial inequality. It doesn't fix the broken school system. It doesn't fix the broken criminal justice system. doesn't fix the broken healthcare system. What it does is it writes people a one-time check which, if if it's any kind of significant money, would be incredibly, incredibly expensive uh, without fixing any of the underlying issues. Now, this is something some people might disagree with. I don't think the problems of poverty are are equal to, I don't have $5,000 on hand one time right now. That is not in any way a solve for poverty or even a, a serious attempt at mitigating it because... The problems of poverty are structural and and every day, right? We've, there are countless examples of, of uh, poor people getting a one-time check and that's just not, that doesn't end their poverty, right? It doesn't, it barely mitigates it because the problems of poverty are far more complex than that. So there's that, there's the fact that it doesn't do anything uh, to solve the problems we should really care about, creates uh, an enormous amount of resentment among the people that feel they are being blamed, right? I mean, the corollary to viewing me as an extension of my slave ancestors is viewing white people as an extension of their enslaving ancestors. Um, you can't really make one claim without making the other. And I think it, cr- it creates an enormous amount of resentment in addition to not solving any of the racial The problems of racial inequality and disparities of luck between the poor and the wealthy that we should want to solve.
2: You mentioned that you got a lot of backlash for that testimony uh, and from friends. What is the popular counter argument?
1: It depends who you're talking about. I mean, there are some, there is one group called ADOS, American Descendants of Slaves, which their entire reason for being an organization is to say that reparations are still owed, no matter how long ago the crime was. I don't know if they, if, if they would extend this to other groups that experienced crimes, but certainly in their own case, they believe reparations has no statute of limitations. And so they came after me pretty hard and they're, I don't know if I would say they're super organized, but they're somewhat organized. Um, everyone has, I guess, their own objection to it. Maybe some think that actually some people, so for for instance, Tanahasi Coates at the, uh, famous writer at the, uh, hearing said, well, no, actually reparations shouldn't be a check. Reparations should be something else. It should be maybe a package of public policy. Um, it should be a kind of reimagining of the American economic and social structure. It should be a broad movement, multi-layered, multifaceted. it should not be a check given from the US government to black people. And then other people at the at the same hearing said, no, absolutely it should be a check. Or actually I actually might be getting this backwards. It might have been Coates who said it should be a check. And and others on the panel that said in, in any event, everyone has their own conception of what it would be. And so, um, you know, in the abstract, I think, I think the whole thing is a distraction goes back to the quote that, that you said earlier. I think we are being distracted by the, like the gravity beam pull of our history to relitigate and try to fix and undo the past, which is impossible, has never been done, will never be done because it's not possible, rather than focus on the already very difficult task of achieving justice and a better society for the people who are alive, for the people who are here to be benefited. And I think that's a far healthier mindset than to relitigate the moral crimes of the past.
2: If you were, let's say, president for a week or a year or whatever, or a genie that could wave the magic wand, what are the hot button topics that you think would do the most benefit to solve these problems, right, that reparations are technically trying to solve?
1: So in terms of public education, I think in cities, charter schools have uh, been shown to uh, often outperform public schools. That's not as true among charter schools in the suburbs, but the charter networks that have proven that they can, you know, to some extent take the same kids in the same neighborhood and do better with them, do better by them. um, I think should be supported. That's not like a, a a full system fix because public education is still broken. And I couldn't really tell you, I'm not a subject matter expert on how to fix it. Sure. I have no idea how to fix healthcare. <laughs> um, So, I was like, it's so, it's yeah. healthcare is so fucked yeah, in is. so many different ways and in so many different directions. Um, and every time I learn more about it, I become more confused about what the deep sources of the problem are. In the, in the criminal justice system, I'm definitely, I, I'm of the opinion that, you know, people talk about the prison system, but we, that kind of starts the story in the middle, right? The problem is both crime and the prison system. It's the whole, you know, start to finish process by which a person who does something wrong, uh, what we do when a person breaks the law, right? Um, And which laws we should even be worried about people breaking For, for a long time. And in many places, we've been far too worried about people having a dime bag of weed or even selling more weed. And I think it's been silly to prohibit this drug, which is not even as bad societally as alcohol. I mean, and we saw how alcohol prohibition went in the in the 20s. It was <laughs> absolutely point. a disaster. Good point. And creating crime and gangs and, and all this stuff. And then the public repealed it. And yet we've prohibited marijuana a very long time and put lots of kids in like a revolving door of being in of interactions with police that go sour, sour revolving door of um, county jails. The whole thing has been, I think, a nightmare. Luckily, that's moving in the right direction yet we still have a big problem of our our prison system's complete inability and not even oriented towards rehabilitating violent offenders. The fact is some people can't be rehabilitated because they're psychopaths, but a lot of people can. And our prison system, instead of saying, look, there are going to be some psychopaths, we can't do anything with them. They just have to, you just have to lock it up and throw away the key basically. But let's find let's work on the people that really like made a mistake, want to improve themselves and work on creating a prison environment where you can improve. What we basically do is we send people to these like prisons with awful conditions where they have to learn how to be even tougher and even more violent just to survive. And then they come out, you know, basically traumatized and hardened and end up going back to crime. It's a very, um, it's a very dysfunctional system and, It it cries out to be corrected. I think people fixate too much on the number of people in prison. So you hear lots of criticisms of mass incarceration based on the U.S. per capita rate of people in prison, which is higher than every country in Europe. I I don't really think that that's the right focus because we also have 10 times as much crime as all those countries in Europe that we're comparing ourselves to. We have crime like a like Latin American countries, but um, state power like European countries. So we're, the, the U.S. is really its own unique country with regard to prison and crime. But we should be focused on improving the conditions of prison so that prison has some kind of rehabilitational, if that's a word, um, bent as opposed to being basically a hellhole where you just have to survive um, and then spitting people back out onto the streets and then asking why the recidivism rate is so high.
2: Now, it's a good point. When you bring up, you know, drug use and marijuana specifically, I just saw a thing the other day. I live in Virginia and apparently the new governor is passing or passed a law to like ban CBD sales or something in that realm. The point is whatever it is, it's ridiculous. And his rationale was, we can't let this be available to our children. And it's hilarious because of alcohol and tobacco and guns. This is when I say the frustration component, because you deal with this stuff every day. How does every single human who hears that statement not go, that's insane? Like I don't just know, I black mean black like, and white logic.
1: I think personally as a kid it was easier for me and my friends to get our hands on weed than to get our hands on alcohol because we couldn't we we would be ID'd if we went into any store and then it's a matter of whether your parents whether you can get into your parents' stash without them noticing and I certainly yep. couldn't do that with my parents. Maybe some people could whereas weed being completely on the black market drug dealers don't give a fuck if you're 18 or not. You're, you know, the the cash is the same color. Exactly. So that seems to me to be a a pretty bad argument.
2: (laughs) One thing I did want to touch on is you just had your album come out and I do not know how to pronounce it.
1: Amor fati. What's it stand for? It stands for love of fate in Latin.
2: Tell me a little bit about that. I'm just curious, like, uh, you've obviously been into music your whole life. Was that like your first love as a child?
1: yeah definitely music was my first love i started playing drums when i was seven piano when i was five trombone when i was 11 or 12 which i got the best at in my teenage years i did various all-star bands where you got to travel the country if you kind of uh auditioned in and then out of high school i uh was pretty much bent on being a professional jazz musician. At that point, I I was also producing hip hop and rapping. But then I went to Juilliard, ended up dropping out after a few months and going through a kind of crisis of meaning and thinking about what I wanted to do partly in the aftermath of my mom passing away. And then I ended up going to Columbia and basically continuing to do music on the side. At Columbia, I started writing and then later started the podcast. So I've kind of had my foot in both worlds for a long time. And there's been a strange phenomenon where my music friends, which were all of my friends and are still probably actually most of my friends in life, were like, wow, it's so weird that Coleman is like doing writing and podcasting now. That's such like a weird different thing. And then everyone who knows me from podcasting and writing says, wow, Coleman is doing music now that's such like a weird different thing. So people from both sides of my life, at least some have been various levels of like surprised or scandalized by that. I do the other thing. Yeah. But you know, to me, it's just how I, how I am
2: with your hands in so many different baskets. I have a random question for you. Never asked this before. Don't even know where it came from. Would you rather be rich, famous or impactful?
1: Well, I can rule out famous to begin with. I think, um, there's a, I think there's a great Tim Ferriss article about wealth versus fame. And he quotes this Bill Murray quote, where Bill says, whenever someone comes up to me and says they want to be a little kid comes up to me, says, says they want to be rich and famous. I say, try being rich first, and see if that doesn't give you everything you want. Um, The point being that what comes with fame, it seems to me, Not clear to me that that's a net good for your happiness, like not being able to walk down the street and go to my local coffee shop without people coming up to me, even if they're fans, just like asking for pictures, um, having to deal with that level of facial recognition, just like I don't think that human beings were built for fame. Now, money, money is great because you can just you can stop doing everything that you hate doing. Even if that's as simple as, you know, I no longer want to be the person that cleans up my house Well, I have money. I can outsource that. Uh, You can buy your own time back and you can create your life. You can basically create your ideal life if you have, if, if you have lots of money, or you can at least take steps towards that. So that one's easy. Um, and the question, the third one is impactful. That's, that's interesting. Would I rather be rich or impactful? That's a good question. I don't really have a, a, a pat answer to that one. Do you have a,
2: no, I, answer? well, and just the fact I appreciate you thinking about it because it'd be, as soon as I asked it, I realized it'd be so easy to say impactful, mm-hmm. sound like the good guy and walk away. And I would have had to probe you on that. I, I, there's a reason, by the way, I have a uh, one up question here, but I was just curious if, if well, you, you can, had,
1: if you're rich, if you're really rich, you can be impactful. You can, you can be impactful. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. And if you're impactful without being rich, that would suggest some level of fame,
2: maybe. That's fair. You just mentioned something I think is worth digging into, which is you dropped out of Juilliard. Your mother died. You went to mm-hmm. Columbia. You studied philosophy. That mm-hmm. does not seem like a um a shock to me when I hear mm-hmm. went to Juilliard, okay, loved music, had a, a traumatizing event, changed life path, and then went to study philosophy. Was the philosophy an answer or an attempt to answer the question that comes when somebody like your mother dies, which is like, what the hell's the point of anything?
1: I would say yes, probably. So I, I had taken one philosophy class when I was a senior in high school. I enjoyed it. I was naturally good at it, but I, at the time I did not think I actually enjoyed it a lot. I didn't act for it, but I didn't think, Oh, this is something, this is what I want to major in in college. When I was at Juilliard and and my mom was was dying and then eventually died, I definitely made a sharp turn into a, a deeper interest in philosophy because i I did feel like what is the point of life if you can just die for random reasons in in your fifties like my mom did and the only place that you can really ask those questions on a college campus and not be laughed out of the room or like told to leave told sir, this is a Wendy's <laughs> is, um, is like religion and philosophy. So I That's true. flirted with majoring in religion, but the problem is I'm not religious. And sometimes it I was ask you that. to okay, yeah. Fully, it was difficult to like write the 20 page paper on the differences between like two strands of Hinduism that ex- existed in like the t- second century BC, because I I wasn't that interested. It all seemed like there was too much hocus pocus elements to it, even though there is a core of spirituality and depth and profundity to religion. Um, so philosophy was a place where you can ask those questions with more of a rational basis. So it was clearly the choice and it was I think, partly to do with my mom's passing.
2: I'm curious, especially with somebody, like I mentioned some of your accolades and your intelligence, your drive, your worldliness. Did you come to any answer on like, what do I want to do here? My primary
1: concerns as like an 18 to 20 to 21 year old was to avoid depression and horrible anxiety and to make career choices that were compatible with inching my way towards a happier life. So I knew that ruled, out, that ruled out professions that I knew I was going to be totally bored by, even if they're difficult. Like I'm not saying finance is easy. I'm saying it to me is boring. And no matter how much money I made, get to a certain point and like have some kind of crisis and like do something crazy as a result of, being unhappy. So that my options are constrained in that sense of like, I have to do something that's compatible with my happiness, which is at least somewhat interesting, which just threw away a lot of it, threw away like consulting and finance right away, which is what most exactly, maybe what most people were kind of looking at.
2: That thought process is extremely rare at 18.
1: Again, it's something, it's something that may have there are silver linings in every tragic experience, but for my mom to die at that age, I think forced me to ask questions that I may not have asked until I was 30 or 40. Yep. And that's having to ask it that young is not necessarily a bad thing. It's actually probably a good thing.
2: I have a theory that you're either going to face something that forces you to question the same things you're talking about. And probably make better decisions after. Or you're not going to face that. Until you're old on your deathbed whatever. And you're going to have regret. For not being forced to.
1: No I think something like that seems true to me as well. Like if you live a full life. In a normal lifespan. You're going to encounter like radical suffering. Radical grief. There's just no way around it. And when you do it will it often naturally leads to you questioning how you have lived your life and how you should live your life in light of the fact that like everything we think matters can sort of be taken away in an instant like how do i live taking that fact on board taking that expectation on board and still be happy so the earlier you the earlier you take that Problem seriously, I think the more prepared you are and the the less your life will have to change in the future in response to catastrophic events, which are unfortunately yeah, coming for us
2: all. Guaranteed. You know, and the other thing is what I find astounding is I really don't think you can get there unless it happens to you. I don't think you can learn your way into that realization.
1: Well, yeah, I've, I've I've noticed this in myself and and others. Advice doesn't move you; <laughs> experience moves you. Yeah, and that experience, painful experience as it might be, it might be exactly the advice that you got when you were five years old from your parents. But it just does not strike you as profound until you have an experience which calls for it.
2: Well, listen, Coleman, I've. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate you um, walking me through this. A couple mm. of things. One, we mentioned um, your new album called Amor Fati. You also have a book coming out. I don't know if you want to plug that, but would love to tell our listeners where they can find you and learn about you because you do have excellent material out there.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so the album is Amor Fati. My rap name is Cold X Man, C-O-L-D-X-M-A-N. You can listen to that wherever you listen to music. Uh, My book won't be out for uh, a while, unfortunately, so I'll just plug my podcast, which is Conversations with Coleman, which you can listen to uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, and my website, colemanhughes.org, where you can become a subscriber to my podcast, get extra content, um, et cetera.
2: All right, Coleman, listen, man, I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me.
0: This week's guest was Coleman Hughes who is hosted, as always, by Chris Stemp and produced by yours truly, John Rojas. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.